tuned to Tidings, and I'm Hazel Kahn. This is not the first time I'm welcoming Michael Zweig to my program, and the book we'll be talking about is certainly not his first. Michael Zweig is Emeritus Professor of Economics and founding director of the Center for Study of Working Class Life at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. Professor Zweig received his PhD in economics from the University of Michigan, where he was a founding member of SDS, Students for a Democratic Society. He also helped found the Union for Radical Political Economics. He remains active in his own union, United University Professions, and he was a national co-convener of U.S. Labor Against the War. In 2014, Michael Zweig received the Working Class Studies Association Award for lifetime contributions to the field of working class studies. With two of his earlier three books sporting class in their titles, it's not surprising, perhaps, that Michael's most recent book, the one we'll be talking about today, is titled Class, Race and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism the foreword of which was written by Reverend William Barber, founder of the Poor People's Campaign. After all that, welcome, Michael Zweig. Welcome to Tidings again, and congratulations on your new book. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Yeah, it's great to have you. I am well aware that I've done all the talking so far, but I think it's very important that our listeners get a view of just how coherent and encompassing your professional life has been, and how singular your focus has been on the injuries and divisions of capitalism, on race and gender, as well as on class. So just one more sentence from me. Your focus has been not only the practical activity of organizing, but also, as you say, on a lifetime of study. So please tell us how all of this has brought you to write for a new generation of activists and leaders. Who are they and why have you written for them? Well, I recognize in the new generation of activists uh, what we were doing when we were the new generation of activists in the 1960s. And that is a history and a tradition of activity, of course, and social movement building but also a deep study when we were students in Ann Arbor and other students in SDS and other student movements around the country in the 1960s, we read. Uh, We read books, we read articles, we read all kinds of stuff outside of what we were getting in our classrooms because Mm -hmm. what we were getting in class, generally speaking, didn't really address the urgent questions of the day we were confronting, issues of race, issues of war and peace, of imperialism, although we didn't have the word at the time. So the tradition that I'm trying to bring forward is a tradition of this, I could say, walking on two legs of theory and practice, of reading and study, but in the context of practical activity in the world of movement building, And that interaction between theory and practice for the last 65 or 70 years that I've been involved is what I'm trying to bring forward in this book. And what obstacles are you facing in doing that? Or maybe a better way of asking is, what are the obstacles to anybody doing that? What are the differences these days from what you remember from 60, 70 years ago? 
Well, in the 1960s, we were involved in a very broad social movement that had many dimensions. There was uh, an active labor movement. There was, of course, the civil rights and black freedom movement. There was the Chicano movement. There was the beginnings uh, later in that decade of the gay and lesbian movements. There was the women's movement bubbling up. And, of course, in a global context, rebellion going on in France and Mexico and China. All over the world, there was challenging the powers that be. And it's hard today to remember just how challenged and how challenging the movements were that were confronting capital and confronting the power structures of the society that we were living in at the time. Corporations felt very much on the defensive. All these different movements were targeting the powers that were in boardrooms and in the government and seeing those interconnections and trying to bring forward the power of social movements. And as I say, those movements were in many different spheres of society, and whichever sphere we were operating in, if it was the student movement, the peace movement, the women's movement, everybody recognized that we were all part of the same movement. And that is what is often missing today. There are a lot of activists. There's a lot of organizing going on in one place or another in the labor movement, black freedom movement, and the women's movement, and gay and lesbian movement, all kinds of places. There's activism going on, but it's in the context of a very dominant capitalist class and a fragmentation among those different movements where often we don't see each other as part of the same uprising. And what I'm trying to do in this book is to convey to the activists of today the kind of feeling and understanding that would bridge those different movements into a common challenge to the injuries and to the divisions of capitalism. It's ironic because that very fragmentation is in fact being exacerbated by social media. So people don't maybe gather as much as they did because they have their screens to gather around. That's a very important point. You know, people are siloed and with the way in which the algorithms work in different media platforms, you get messages and you get information about what you have said you're interested in. So if you're interested in the labor movement, you will get a lot of stuff about labor, but you won't get anything about the women's movement. Mm-hmm. Or if you're interested in you're active in the movement for black lives, you're going to see a lot of stuff about the movement for black lives and black freedom issues, but you're not going to see anything because the algorithm isn't going to give you anything about the women's movement or the climate movement or any of these other things. So all the more important to have a book where mm-hmm. people can actually read and see the connections and bring that book into study groups and into conversation of all the different social movements that are percolating around. And that's what I'm hoping the book will do. It will be a resource for all of those movements. It is a little bit ironic then that the book, the book, the printed page will take us back to the days when we were not so fragmented. Books are very important, you know, and uh, some people say, well, nobody reads anymore or uh, young people don't read. It it isn't true. People do read. They read if they're interested and they read if they think they're learning something. And from what I gather in the preparation of the book and the beginning of marketing, that there are labor groups and environmental groups and student groups around the country that do want to look at this book, order it and read it and have it available in study groups. So obviously you've written the right book and you got it out with the right message. So talk about what is it that you've been telling people that makes them want to see the book? The message is we're in a broad political environment where the social movements are very much on the defensive and where capitalism is triumphant all over the world. 
Whatever you think about uh, China or Russia or France, Japan or the United States, they have different particularities, but they're all capitalist countries because capitalism has basically triumphed across the planet. But the last 100, 150 years of the rise of capitalism has been marked by resistance to the power of capital, all kinds of forms of resistance. And the movements today need to be connected to that history of resistance and come to movement building with an understanding of how the capitalist system actually works so that movements that we build are actually addressed to the power that we are confronting. Whether that power is obvious or if it's subtle, that's the power of capital and that is what we're all confronting if the labor movement or the environmental movement or poverty issues, all that stuff is involved in challenging capital. And this book is trying to explain why that's true, how that works, and what are the connecting the dots across Don't all say, these different movements. Yeah, say more about why and how economic relations are, in fact, central to all aspects of social life. Can you expand that a little bit? It's an important point. Because the economy is more than just the market. I have been a professor of economics for 55 years, and that is one of the most important points I try to bring to my students. The market is only one element of what the economy is. The economy is a structure of production and distribution of what's produced. No society can survive without that happening. Every society must, as a first order of business, produce what it needs for its people to live and reproduce. And in that sense, production and the economy is central to everything. The political arrangements, the culture, the religious beliefs, all those things need in some way or another to conform with what is necessary to produce for the people. When we talk about economic activity, the first order of business is to produce enough for the people who are working or are producing that they can survive, that they can live, and that they can get their skills and training, raise a new generation of working people. That's the minimum that every society has to do. And if a society cannot do that, cannot feed its people, cannot arrange for the reproduction of its own population by what it produces that society will die. And we've had, in the history of humanity, many societies that have died because they couldn't do that for one reason or another. So once you get that established, the culture and politics and everything else has to, in one way or another, either conform with and contribute to that reproduction, that production, or at least can't really be a spanner in the works, so yeah. to speak, that really disrupts it. Now, once you have produced enough for the working population to survive and reproduce itself into the next generation, if you produce more than that, that's what we could call a surplus. Every society beyond the most primitive, historically, has produced a surplus. Mm -hmm. Some societies, like the Northwest Coast First Peoples in Washington State and British Columbia, when they produced more than what they needed, they had a big party at the end of the year. It was called a potlatch. Mm -hmm. And they just ate it up and danced and had a good time until there wasn't any more. And then they went to sleep and they got up and worked for another year and they had another potlatch. The British came along into that part of the world and they put a stop to that. And in many parts of the world, all through human history, 
as soon as there's been a surplus that's produced beyond what working people need for themselves, some group of people in that society takes that surplus mm -hmm. and says, ah, that's mine. And then you have the beginning of exploitation. Exploitation is a word that has been bandied around. It just means nothing more than one group of people takes for itself the product of another group of people who've made it. Different societies have had exploitive relations. Certainly capitalism does, but feudalism did. Slavery does. All kinds of systems, tributary systems, they all have mechanisms specific to those economic systems that generate surplus. So if we're talking about the capitalist society, there's an enormous surplus that the productive population creates every year. Mm -hmm. And that surplus is not just profit, but supports all the activity that is not productive of what people need who are working in order to survive, raise a family, and move on to the next generation. So in a way, the economic challenge is, first of all, to recognize that that production process is central to the society and it conditions everything else. It conditions politics, it conditions culture, religious beliefs, the environmental situation, just the environment. That understanding is the core of what I'm trying to bring out in this book to show how it is that that structure of production and surplus creation and surplus taking in capitalism gives rise to the racial differences that we have in the United States. It shapes the misogyny that has so long been part of the human society, even before those capitalists. Michael Zweig is talking about his new book, Class, Race and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. This is Tidings and Hazel Kahn on WPKN Radio. It shapes the environmental degradation and destruction that we find all around us ever more present. Those things arise in the capitalist system. And so if you're trying to address peace or environment or racial justice or workplace or gender justice, elements which are in silos in American political life are really growing out of the same soil of capitalism and capitalist organization. And that's the common feature that ought to unite all those different movements in a common struggle against a common enemy. Is this a good time to ask you what progressive means? I write this book to advance progressive politics. Now, the word progressive has a lot of different meanings. So right up front, I say, for me, progressive is anything that reduces suffering, you suffering. Anything that increases the intellectual capacity, the organizational capacity, and the material well-being of working people, that's progressive. If you have a policy that increases suffering or punishes people or makes it more difficult for workers to have a decent life, that's not progressive. That's anti-progressive. So when I talk about this book being a resource for progressive politics, I mean it to be a resource for anything that reduces suffering and that increases the material conditions, intellectual and the organizational capacity of working people in the United States and around the world. So I'm one of those people who said that nobody reads, and you took me to task when I said that to you the other day. And I said, well, people just don't read. And you said to me, yes, they do. And nevertheless, what would be the, the rails along which this book might travel to your readers? I think that the book will travel through social movements. For example, in Northern Virginia, there is a union movement, and there is a, what's called the Central Labor Council, 
that brings together the different unions in that area so that they can coordinate their work. And that Central Labor Council in Northern Virginia has a book club for their activists and for union leaders and for union activists in all the different occupations and unionized uh, workplaces in Northern Virginia. Well, they've adopted this book for their book club. That's good. I'm hoping that uh, chapters of DSA and the Sunrise Movement and chapters of Black Lives Matter, and of course, I hope it will be used and it's available and it's accessible for classroom use in sociology and economics and political science, schools and social welfare. But outside of the classroom, I think that it will be a resource that will be valuable for students in action, for people who are activists, whether they're in the labor movement, the Black Lives Matter movement, Me Too and the women's movement, LGBTQ movement, wherever they are trying to figure out which are your friends and who are your enemies and what the hell is going on, My hope is that this book will help orient that group of people and help shape their practice. Mm -hmm. So you are operating within a a pre-established framework. You're preaching to the converted at some level. You're not thinking you're going to go down into the sort of, I hate to use this phrase, which you probably hate me for, the great unwashed. I don't think that's a very good phrase. I I really want to to stop you on that one. All right, please do. Uh, Well, you know, people are not unwashed. They're they're not dirty. They're not mean. They're, They're involved in trying to understand which way is up. And that isn't just activists. That's that's people who are puzzled and wondering what the hell is going on in the world. You know, you turn on the news and it's baffling what's going on and who's who and what's what. You can't quite trust what you see on MSNBC or CNN or Fox. So people are looking for information. They're looking for ways to think about things. And that extends beyond even the immediately organized and the people who are activists It's not like preaching to the converted because people have many different ideas about what is going on. So I'm not preaching to anybody. I'm engaging in a conversation with people who have their own ideas, their own thoughts, and they're just trying to figure out what to do on the basis of an understanding of what's going on in order to make life better for themselves and other people. And that is what I'm doing. And I don't think it has anything to do with being washed or unwashed or any of that, yeah. which I think is a language and a conception inappropriate for the kind of politics that progressive people need to do. Well, let me for take me to task for that. I should have said people are confused and wanting not to be confused. They're searching. Well, that's yeah. a whole different thing. Yeah, yeah. So you have to unhear what I just said. Well, I can't unhear it, but it's a good conversation. It's a good point to bring out and to, to air. Good. So we'll do that. You made it much more exciting, really, to me, how this book of yours will proliferate. So what I would like to now choose two of the chapters of the 11 chapters in your book. If we could start with chapter six, where you're talking about connecting the dots across issues, those dots that connect, let's say, environmental devastation to other issues. So if you could give people a little bit of an examination of that idea. And then after that, I'd like you to then tackle socialism, which is the 11th chapter. The question of connecting the dots is, in a way, at the heart of what I'm trying to do in this book. And I'm glad that you focused on that. Good. The environmental justice movement, for example, it turns out that what's going on in the environment is deeply and intimately connected to capitalism. 
and to the way in which individual companies pay no attention to the social consequences of their private actions, because there's no mechanism in the market to force them to do that. For a capitalist enterprise, the environment is just a bunch of different resources. The idea that there is an ecology, the idea that if you take one resource, you damage another, or you change the environment for another, is irrelevant. Now, if you have a social system in which everyone thinks that they are alone and just making calculations as to what is in their personal best interest without concern for what the community needs or what other people are about and what the material environment is about, if you have a society in which people treat all that as irrelevant and all they want is just an individual resource drawn out of that environment for their own profit, you're going to deplete the environment and you're going to have catastrophe. And that's just what we have. Mm. So the catastrophe of environmental devastation is at its root something which arises out of capital accumulation and the rules of capital accumulation that if a capitalist enterprise doesn't follow it, they're going to go broke. If we're talking about racial justice or if we're talking about militarism, we'll see the same thing that at the core of those problems is the way in which capital accumulation is organized uh, in the kind of economy and the kind of society in which we live. And that's what I'm trying to do here is to, in that chapter, to connect the dots across all these social movements of militarism, of uh, privatization, uh, of uh, uh, environmental justice, of economic crisis, why are there recessions, why are there depressions, why is there monetary catastrophes every once in a while? All of those things have a common root. And so if you're concerned about any of those things, you have a partner in your concern across all those movements and a common thrust to challenge capital. That's very helpful then. An example of what one of the chapters, a subsection really of one of those chapters so socialism, you can tell us about the imprecise and distorted perceptions that people hold these days of what socialism is, as much as perceptions of what it's not. Your clarification here would be very useful, I think. Socialism is a word that has many different connotations and many different meanings, depending on who's speaking and what they're trying to uh, get at. In the broadest double meaning of Socialism understood as, as a critique of capitalism, as an intellectual structure. So when Marx and Engels wrote the Communist Manifesto, and um, Engels later on wrote Socialism, Scientific and Utopian, they were talking about socialism as a way of critiquing and understanding capitalism from the point of view of working people. Mm. So in that way, socialism is a system of thought. But then socialism is also a system of social organization, an actual society. And many different forms of socialism have emerged in the 20th century and in the later part of the 19th century, all of them representing in one way or another an attempt to bring the working class to power in society instead of the capitalist class. In a capitalist society, the society we live in now, the political system that is designed to support capitalism, as every political system is designed to support its basic economic arrangement. Socialism then becomes a system that brings workers to power instead of capitalists. Oh. 
Now, how does that happen? Well, there have been many different forms. Sometimes people want to do it by violent revolution and just, you know, let's kill all the capitalists and take their property. Other people say, no, let's do this through democracy. The working class is the majority of the population. If we do our politics right, we can vote and we can make changes and we can have democratic socialism. We can rule without the terror of the Cultural Revolution or of Stalin's purges. We can rule through democratic means. Other people say, well, socialism is just liberalism, like Franklin Roosevelt, different variety of democratic socialism. Socialism, in that sense, is a system that brings the working class to power. Now, whether that's unique power or that's power sharing with the capitalists in one way or another, all of those things are different forms that the word socialism has been attached to. And in our country, with the campaign of Bernie Sanders, socialism has come back into the lexicon, and it's uh, no longer a dirty word in the general population and certainly in the social movements. But again, there's not a clear understanding of what that really means. And if we're talking about Bernie, the socialism he talks about is what might be called democratic socialism. And what that last chapter is trying to unpack that word and what it might mean as we undertake progressive politics. You know, capitalism has many forms, uh, too. I said earlier, China is a capitalist country. It's very Uh far away from what the United States is like. So you can have many different particular forms of socialist systems. And they're all, in one way or another, bringing the working class to power. Yeah. Well, thank you. So, Mike, we're ready to come to the end of our very short time. But there's a couple of things that I want to make sure we cover. I will want you to tell people in a few minutes where your book is available. Sure. But before that, I just want to say that you write somewhere, it will take a long time to reverse the long processes that the capitalist class has wrought And yet you see the rise of righteous movements, as you call them, in the zeitgeist. And you seem challenged, challenged and not discouraged by what you see. Did I get that right or or not? Yes, absolutely. All of these social movements that are rising up, but it's in the context of very substantial power in the hands of the capitalist class, the ruling class in this country. And to push that power back, is going to take quite a bit of time. It's going to take a lot of work, a lot of energy, a lot of suffering going to be involved in it, but people will continue to rise. And I take comfort from that. I take hope from that. And I am participating in that, not just in my writing, but in the other work that I do in the labor movement and the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, you know, in, in a number of different parts of my life, trying again to bring together theory and practice so that my practical work is guided by the kind of analysis that we've been talking about today. But that analysis in turn arises from the political work that I and so many other people around me are doing. And that brings me great confidence that there's still work to do that's going to be productive in bringing the country in a progressive direction. Just please tell people where they can find the book. The book is published by PM Press, pmpress.org.org. And the title again of the book is Class, Race, and Gender Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. It's about 225 pages. It's not a doorstopper book, 
I try to write in a way that people will understand. I've spent a lot of time in classrooms, in church basements, and uh, union halls, and have some idea of how to uh, express these things in ways that are not full of jargon. I'm happy that you were able to find the time, and I hope be one of the first people I hope to review this book. I don't know if that's true or... This is the first real introduction that I've done in an interview for the book, and I very much appreciate the chance. I have a number of book events that are uh, scheduled already around mm -hmm. the country. So let me end by saying thank you, Michael. Michael Zweig, author of the new book, Class, Race and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. And I want to end with what veteran journalist and political commentator Bill Moyers said to you in a television interview. He said, you're one of my heroes, Mike. You still believe in the fight. And so I just thank you for still believing in the fight. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you, Michael. You heard Michael Zweig talking about his new book, Class, Race and Gender, Challenging the Injuries and Divisions of Capitalism. You can hear Tidings on the second Wednesday of the month at this time and any time at all as podcasts on hazelkahn.com. If listening to this interview and WPKN's other great interview programs has been worth your time, please remember that the Donate button on WPKN.org will always open at your touch. Thank you very much for your support. I'm Hazel Kahn. Music.